good afternoon, church. We are continuing our short series of studies from the collection of Psalms. And um, I was told that last week we looked at Psalms 42 and 43. It's quite gloomy. And today we'll be looking at 44. It, get, it gets gloomier. So bear with me because this is the Word of God. Now, Taylor Swift uh, just released a new album, and in this uh, latest collection that my daughter and I like compared to the previous one, she included a song that made me think, hey, did uh, Taylor Swift come to believe in Jesus? Which song is that? It is the song entitled, Soon You'll Get Better. Soon You'll Get Better. It's a song that Taylor Swift says was the hardest one to write and also difficult to sing. Because Soon You'll Get Better is a song that, that's about her mother's fight with cancer. And so if you listen to it, the song tells a story of the singer accompanying her mother to the doctor, her hair unkempt, feeling scared, desperate, in disbelief, and calling out to Jesus. It is a sad song with the repeated line, Soon you'll get better. Soon you'll get better, albeit knowing things, quote, won't get back to normal. So she sings, soon you'll get better, soon you'll get better, because she has to, because, quote, she will have no one to talk to. It is a song that tells of a sad story without a resolution, without a conclusion. The psalm that we're going to look at today, the 44th Psalm, is a song that also recounts of a sad story. And it is a song that was surely difficult to write, difficult to sing or declaim. It is a song where there's not even an assurance that soon things will get better. And you'll see what I mean because we are going to read this psalm as men, women, and together. So we'll do a responsive reading. Slides come, comes up. Will the man please read? One, two, three. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. Now the women.
All day long my disgrace is before me, and shame has covered my face. At the sound of the toner and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm 44. Did you get the drift of the psalm? It is a song of lament. And it's very likely that it is one song that is sung after the nation's loss in battle. So the song has clearly four divisions, and I've outlined it for you in your, in your program sheet. What God did, first division. What God is doing at present. And the people respond and asking, what did we do? And last, they cry out saying, do something, O Lord. And so addressed to God, the first division, if you recall, if you look at your Bible, sings of God's faithfulness to His people in the past. And how was God faithful? God was faithful to His people by winning battles for His people. And the list of what God has done in verses 1 to 3 alludes to the Canaan conquests. So how God, with His mighty hand, He drove out the nations residing in the promised lands, the different nations in the lands. If you remember them, you probably memorized them in children's church. It's, it's all the ites in the land of Canaan. You have the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, all the ites that the Lord drove away, but then He planted Israel. And the people, having heard what God did with their forefathers, the people acknowledged that it was not their might, not their sword, not their weapons, not their war tactics that won them the land, but it was God. It says here in verses 1 to 3, it was God's right hand, it was His arm, it was the light of His face, it was His favor, it was His delight upon His people. And so having given God the credit for their nation's past military success, the people now then declared their loyalty and trust to God. Not only the people, the king also interjects. So the lines that I just read right now are probably the lines that the king uh, 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 recites where the king affirms that God is his king and that Israel's salvation comes from God alone. So the king's lines are different from the rest in that you will notice that you have first-person singular pronouns. You have I, my, and me in those lines. And so the king and the people declare the commitment at the end in verse 8 to give thanks to God forever. 
and they made a commitment to always boast in Him. And when we read the psalm, Psalm 44, until verse 8, you would have wished the psalm ended in verse 8. Then it would have sounded victorious. But you see, if you read the psalm from 1 to 8 and you stop at 8, it would have been incomplete because that is not the main point of the psalm. You would have missed the main point of the psalm. So when we were doing this study in our DG, I asked uh, Generation Xers and Generation Xers, how many of you know the song Superwoman? Early in the morning, I put breakfast on your table and make sure that your coffee has its sugar and cream. Your eggs are go easy, are over easy, your toast done lightly. All that's missing is your morning kiss that used to greet me. Sounds familiar? If you ended on verse 3, it is a love song. But that's not the main point of the song. It is not a love song. It is a song of lament. A song that was sung by the neglected wife to her husband. So one of the husbands in the DG said, Hey, how come I don't know that song? You never sang that to me. You better not hear your wife sing that to you because it is a song of lament. When you look at, or rather when you reach verse 9 of this psalm, you realize that it is not a victorious psalm. It is instead a lament psalm. Because from verse 9 onwards, everything spirals down. Because the second division laments of the present situation that the people are caught in. And we read here of a list of what God is presently doing to them. And what is God doing to them? It's just exactly the reversal of God's acts, which was sung earlier in the first division. So a slide comes up. Now you see that God has rejected them. God has put them to disgrace. God, God leaves them to go to battle alone, verse 9. God gave the enemies the upper hand. And so this time, God's people were the ones retreating. They were the ones running for their lives, verse 10. And not only that, God made them casualties. And for those who survived, they were sent away as prisoners, as slaves, as exiles, verses 11 to 12. And last, God made them the butt of the nation's jokes, verses 13 to 14. And so we see no longer does the Lord fight for them. Instead of driving out enemies, they were the ones driven out. Instead of the enemies being supplanted, they are the ones sold. Instead of victory, they now have defeat. And so instead of boasting in the Lord as they have committed to doing so, there is now disgrace. They have become a byword. They have become a laughing stock. And you know, their, their experience in the second division of Psalm 44 sounded like curses that are listed for us in Deuteronomy 28. So next slide comes up, Deuteronomy 28. Remember the curses that God gave uh, uh, as a warning to the nation through Moses? And it has these warnings. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey shall be seized from your face. 
and your sheep shall be given to your enemies. These are all descriptions of subjugations with enemies taking away the spoils from them. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people. It's a description of an exile. Exile as foreign slaves. And then the last line, you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where the Lord will lead you away. Now, because their present experience sounds like the curses that the Lord warns the nations in Deuteronomy 28, you and I conclude, surely they must have disobeyed the Lord. Surely they must have forgotten Him, or surely they must have sacrificed to the idols to deserve all this. But you see, the problem is that was not the case. Because in the third division of this psalm, God's people now register a protest. It's like them asking God, what did we do? What, did we, what have we done to deserve all this? Because as far as they know, they did not forget God. Next slide. As far as they know, they did not break His covenant. Verse 17. No, they did not break faith. Verse 18. They did not flirt with idols. No, they didn't give them worship. Verse 20. And yet, despite being innocent to deserve the curses in Deuteronomy 28, they find themselves where? In gloomy, desolate places. Verse 19. Which is perhaps a description of war remains. And they are victims now of massacres. They're helpless. They're tied up. They're butchered like sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 22. And so sometimes it is easier to read this and say, you know, when the psalmist protests before God, maybe the psalmist is just being delusional. Maybe he has forgotten that he has sinned. It is easier to say, surely God's people here must have sinned against the Lord, hence earning the curses they deserve. That would have been an easier explanation to explain away their suffering. Well, you see, friends, the truth is God's people do sometimes suffer innocently. Let me repeat that. God's people do sometimes suffer innocently. Now, this does not mean that they are without sin. No. They are not just guilty of a particular act that earned them the corresponding suffering. So the people here in Psalm 44, they claimed innocence. And we should just take their word for it. And so being innocent, they now voice their protest to God, asking, what do we do? What have we done? And it seemed that God did not hear their protest. Because in the last division, the people cry out to God. The people cried out, Awake, rouse up, rise yourself. You see, it seemed that they are now very confused. They have forgotten that the God who watches over Israel, He does not sleep. He does not slumber, Psalm 121. You and I sleep. You and I need sleep. But God, He does not sleep. And so why did they cry out to God and tells God, asks God to wake up, to rise up from his sleep. This kind of imploration is, is only reserved to waking up a sleeping God. It's a mockery 
Remember Elijah who, uh, who uh, challenged the prophets of Baal to tell them, wail louder, cry louder because perhaps your God is on a vacation. Perhaps he is asleep. But here, God's people cry out to God, awake, rise up, rouse yourself. Because in their desperation, God seems to them as a God who has fallen in deep sleep. And in their desperation, this is how, what they resort to, and this is how they ask God to look at them and save them. Friends, this is a sad, sad psalm. And I do not know what to make of it at first reading. It is just plain bleak. It is a sad song that has no resolution. You probably won't hear Psalm 44 preach in health and wealth prosperity churches. It is just simply very bleak. And yet God's word, though bleak it may be, must have something to teach us because it is written for our instruction. It is written for our encouragement. And so let me give you a few. Firstly, we learn from this psalm the importance of knowing God's faithfulness, God's faithfulness in the past, both through the Word and through our personal experiences. It's important to remember how He has been faithful as instructed in the Scripture and through our personal experience. So the singers of Psalm 44, for one, they know of God's faithful deeds in the past. And how did they know it? Because of the instruction that has been handed down to them. We were told that their fathers told them God's word. Their fathers told them of God's miraculous deeds. So they received the instructions from the fathers. They received the teachings and they have put them in their heart. Not only that, they believed that the Lord's hand indeed brought redemption and victory to their forefathers. And so, in the end, they declared their loyalty, they declared their commitment to God in the present. That is why the first division ends with verse 8 saying, In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. So the importance of knowing God's faithfulness in the past through scriptural teaching and instruction through the Word. And this importance cannot be overstated. Why? Because if you and I are not instructed in the Word, you and I are in danger of worshiping a God of our own imagination instead of the God as He has revealed Himself in the Word. Secondly, the importance of knowing God's faithfulness through our personal experience. You will agree with me that we are very, very forgetful people. We are always quick to forget God's provision, God's protection, God's rescue, you name it all. We are quick to forget. And so it is always a good exercise for us to recall how God has been faithful to us. So I used a notepad on my phone and I would list down the things that I would like to thank God for. 
To date, I have 137 reasons to praise God and thank God for. And I look at them when I couldn't sleep because there is wisdom that it's better to count your blessings instead of sheep. I look at them when I feel the blues. I look at them when I am down, when I doubt God's goodness during trying times. And guess what? I fall asleep. And I fall in His loving arms once again. And I will be empowered to declare my loyalty and my faith to Him once again. The importance of recalling God's faithfulness in the past in our personal experiences. So that when the time comes, when we go through suffering and it seems that God is dozing off, what must you and I do? When God seems to have dozed off, you tell yourself His track record. Track record, it's a term that PAP likes to use, right? Use it to God. Remember God's track record. Tell it to yourself and tell it to Him. And declare to God what uh, Steve Curtis Chapman would sing to his wife. Tomorrow when you wake up, I will be here. God seems to be sleeping, but when he wakes up, I will still be here. I will still be loyal to him. Secondly, when God seems to have dozed off, do not go to the next shop. Tell you what I mean. You know, when I was a child, my family lived in a shop house where dad uh, run an electrical supplies store at the ground level, and the families lived on the third level, on the third floor. The benefits of having shop and home in one location is that dad, after lunch, he could close shop. It was in the 70s where people closed shop during lunchtime. He could easily catch a nap. So I suppose Pastor Chris, who lives behind the building, would have the benefit of catching a nap once in a while. Thankfully, he's not here. <laughs> but the disadvantages of having shop and home in one location is this. Sometimes we would have a neighbor knocking at 10, 9 or 10 in the evening after the shop has closed for the day because his light bulb blew and he needed badly a new light bulb. Mind you, this was in the 70s. People do not stock up on light bulbs because they're too fragile and they're too expensive. It's just more convenient to just buy when you need them. And light bulbs, they don't tell you when they're going to blow. Just switch it on and boom. And then if it's in the middle of the night, you just have to transfer one light bulb to the place or to the room where you needed a light. And so the neighbor would come knocking and sometimes the neighbor will be shouting persistently knocking on the metal doors. We could hear it from three floors up. He, she, he or she will shout, Hello, open up please. And he would not mind annoying us because he needed light in the dark. And he would not go to another shop. Why? Because he's a loyal customer. And he knows that we will be the only one who will open up for him. When God seems to be dozing off, do not go knocking the door of the next shop. Do not turn to another. Do not go idol shopping. 
but instead keep knocking, keep knocking. Isn't that what Jesus tells, teaches us about prayer? Knock and the door will be open. And he also says of how in a parable, when your friend comes and you need bread, what do you do? You knock at your friend's door, even if it's the middle of the night. And your friend is going to wake up from his sleep. He will rise and he will give you what, he, what you need. And that is who God is. So when God seems to have dozed off, do not go to the next shop. Instead, when God seems to have dozed off, do not give up. Wake him up. Why? Because his love is steadfast. You know how I made sense out of this sad, sad psalm? Well, thankfully, there is verse 22. And thankfully, the Apostle Paul quoted Psalm 44, verse 22. Verse 22 that says, Yet for your sake we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. It is a very familiar verse that Apostle Paul uses and helps us to understand this sad, sad psalm. So in Romans chapter 8 from verse 17 onwards, the Apostle Paul speaks of our, he speaks of our future glorification with Christ. And he says, in light of the sure glorification, our present suffering, Paul says, our present sufferings are not worth Compared, comparing with the future glory because in and through suffering, God is working out all things for the good of the believer. Romans 8.28. Many people love that verse. Even those who do not know God sometimes use that verse because that verse seems to suggest all is going to be well. Or that verse seems to say, you know, it's always a blessing in disguise. But Paul meant more than just worldly cliches. What Paul meant when he's talking about the good that God is working out is our ultimate glorification. So Paul says, those whom God foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. And so if such is the case, Paul says, can anything hinder God's purpose, God's good purpose and plan for his child? God is for us, Paul says. And the proof is in the giving of His Son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus died for our sins, forgives us for our sins. Jesus justifies us. Jesus sits at the right hand of God interceding uh, for us. Paul asks now, and the slide is for you to look at. He says, given this truth, given this fact, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, shall persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No. He says, as it is written. Psalm 44, verse 22. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And then he concludes and he says, no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, 
or rather from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter what form of suffering we as God's people go through, Paul says, even, even if it meant dying like sheep sent to be slaughtered, know for sure that it does not in any way diminish, cancel, or nullify God's love for us in Christ Jesus. Because nothing will separate us from the love of God. And so the inscription that I would love, God willing, to be placed on my tombstone if I die before the Lord returns are the phrases, even this will not separate me from God's love in Christ. And this is a truth that we all need to learn and believe while our numbered days are good, while we're still enjoying the good old days, before the days of trouble come, before the days come when we sing, soon it'll get better, and it won't. It won't get better because we are all under the sentence of suffering and death. But praise God, nothing separates us from God's love in Christ Jesus. Now notice that although Psalm 44 ends with a cry, almost sounding disrespectful or mocking, telling God, awake, rouse up, rouse yourself, rise up, Notice that there is a change in how the psalmist addresses God. If you scan through Psalm 44, the last five times God was addressed as, as God. In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim, which is the word that is used also to describe other deities, God. But here in verse 23, lastly, when the psalmist cries out to God, he now invokes or calls on God's personal name, Lord, which is the word Adonai in Hebrew. And his plea finds its basis in Adonai, in the Lord, and in his steadfast love. That is why verse 26 says, Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. So why does the psalmist cry out to the Lord? Because he clings on to the Lord's loving kindness. He can count on the Lord's steadfast love. It is a love that endures. It is a love that never changes. And such is God's love for us, his children. And so when God seems to have dozed off, do not give up because of his steadfast love. And because we believe that the Father's love is steadfast, we will trust that the suffering that He brings unto us is always for our holiness. So a lot of times it's very difficult to make sense of suffering. Sometimes it is difficult to know how to respond. But Donald Carson has a very good exhortation. He says when suffering makes sense, does not make sense, perhaps we, you and I should consider this that if suffering leads you to be more conscious of sin in your lives, you are on the right track. Don't know how to respond to suffering? Well, if it leads you to be more conscious of sin, you're on the right track. 
After all, isn't this what we see in Psalm 44? The suffering of God's people led them to examine their ways and ask, have we broken faith? Have we bowed down to idols? Have we forgotten God? See, suffering may not always be the result of sin, but it is always a good wake-up call to examine if we have displeased God so that we will turn away from sin, run to the Lord Jesus, and find forgiveness in Him. Secondly, Carson suggests, if suffering makes you spend more time in prayer, you are on the right track. So how do you respond to suffering? It says, if it leads you to pray more, that is good. You are on the right track. After all, the king and his people prayed 26 lines in Psalm 44. As a result of suffering deadly defeat. And because they prayed 26 lines in Psalm 44, Psalm 44 was penned down for our instructive prayer and encouragement in times of suffering. So if suffering makes you spend more time in prayer, you are on the right track. James Bergwald, who wrote an article, When God Makes Life Hard, he writes, quote, while in pain, keep the intimate times with God going. Do not withdraw. This is what the enemy wants you to do. Express anger, express hurt feelings, express frustration and confusion to God. Go ahead. Ask God in prayer daily about the growing pains in your life. Ask Him for relief every hour. Knock. Be the persistent widow because these are relationship-building actions, and this is what God wants, end of quote. So how did James Bergwall come to write all these? Well, it is because he has a story. His wife, Linda, had cancer, cancer that metastasized to the bones, to the lungs, and to her liver. And in that same year, Linda's mother had an aggressive type of breast cancer. And in that same year, their eight-year-old daughter developed a rare form of liver cancer, all in that same year. But James Bergwall and his wife, they're not going to just pack up. They're not going to just stop and lick their wounds. They committed to pray. They committed to draw themselves near to God. They committed to do more church work until the Lord tells them to stop. Until the Lord calls Linda home. So if suffering makes you spend more time in prayer, you are on the right track. Even Jesus, God's son, responded to his sufferings in prayer. Hebrews chapter 5, look at your slide. <clears throat> In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, 
he learned obedience through what he suffered. So when you and I look at Psalm 44, sometimes we hasten to find similarities between the sufferings of the psalmist and our sufferings and, and see if it applies to us. But mind you, our sufferings are nothing in comparison to what the psalmist is going through. So instead of trying to find similarities between us and the psalmist's sufferings, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Why? Because he is the truly innocent sufferer who suffered for our sins. Suffered for our sins because we broke faith with God. He did not. Jesus did not. We flirted with idols. Jesus did not. We forget God. Jesus did not. And yet for our sakes, Jesus was the sheep who was led to the slaughter. And he did not protest, but rests himself in the loving arms of the Father who heard his cries, saw his tears, heard his prayers, and raised him back to life for our sake. I do not know what kind of suffering, what form of suffering you and I are going through or you are going through. But when you and I suffer, never point a finger at God. Instead, run to Him. Hope in Him. Knock on His door. Don't go to the next shop. Pray. Seek Him. Because that builds your relationship to the Lord and that is what the Lord wants. May the Lord... Enable us and empower us through our suffering moments. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks for this sad, sad psalm where there seems to be no resolution. But we give thanks that there is a resolution that is found in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He suffered for our sins. He suffered innocently so that we might be forgiven and we might be reconciled to you so that we may have a relationship with you. And in Jesus, there is the promise of the ultimate glorification. So much so that the sufferings, whatever form that we are going through, they are worth nothing compared to the glory that we have in Jesus. Empower us to always run to you, to cling on to you, to declare our loyalty to you in the midst of suffering, knowing that our cries, our prayers will be ultimately answered in Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name.